A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. I know you've heard about Audible services many times before, so let me get straight to the recommendation. For hardcore History of Rome and Byzantium fans, why don't you check out In the Shadow of the Sword by Tom Holland. I'm sure you've heard of Tom Holland by now. He's written books about the fall of the Roman Republic and the great war between Greece and Persia, and this book is about the birth of Islam. Yes, it's ultra-relevant to where we are in our story. And it's been a great source of information for this podcast. You'll meet some very familiar characters as Justinian, Kusro, and Yersinia, along with Heraclius and all the rest cross Holland's path as he searches for the origins of the Muslim religion. I'll be talking about all this myself when we reach the end of the century, but if you want to get ahead, then you can get it now for free from audible.com. Tom Holland's style has to be seen or heard to be believed. He has an amazing ability to bring the ancient world to colourful life. And you could be listening to his words for free if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 50 the teenage emperor. Heraclius is dead. Long live his two sons, Heraclius Constantinus and his brother, uh, Constantinus Heraclius, better known to us for now obvious reasons as Constantine Third and Heraclonus. In this time of crisis, the Roman Empire desperately needed one experienced emperor, and instead they got two inexperienced ones who didn't necessarily get along. Before we delve into that mess, I'm afraid it's time to talk about our sources again. We're now in the least sourced part of Byzantine history, and I've mentioned why on several occasions. The Balkans are now populated by non-literate peoples, and the Arab takeover of the Near East caused enough chaos to make life difficult for anyone attempting to write a coherent picture of the 7th century. We are therefore left entirely with our Byzantine historians, which would be fine except that the two earliest surviving histories were both written around 800 AD. And I've already mentioned both before in passing, Theophanes the Confessor was a monk whose scholars believe was continuing or collating the work of earlier historians when he published his history, and Nicephorus, who will appear in our story, 
as he was the patriarch of Constantinople around 800, and he also used earlier material to write a short history. Unfortunately, this means that both men are relying on earlier accounts, which we have no way of fully critiquing. The period leading up to 800 will be a turbulent one for Byzantium, including the serious internal strife over iconoclasm. The result is that the histories have been edited over the years to reflect the current political biases. And by current, I mean the biases of the year 800 or so. I say all this now so that I won't have to again when I offer you the many caveats which follow in the story of the next 150 years. Okay, so Heraclius passed away in February 641, and immediately afterwards Martina informed the Senate and Patriarch of the dead emperor's wishes. She then called the people to the Hippodrome, where she announced that both her son and stepson would now be taking over. The crowd cheered their emperors, but were not impressed at all with the Augusta trying to take a leading role in the affairs of state. Or so we're told. You all know about the wicked stepmother trope in Roman history, and everything we hear about Martina follows that tradition. It's not a stretch to imagine she was deeply unpopular, given her incestual marriage, but whether she actually tried to wield power from the front, we don't know. She was certainly widely blamed for what happened next. Constantine III was 29 years old, while Martina's natural son Heraclonus was only 15. So although they were technically co-emperors, it was obvious to everyone who would actually rule in the short term. But barely three months later, Constantine III was dead. According to our sources, he discovered the reserve of cash that Heraclius had left for Martina and took it away from her. Then he began to feel unwell. Very unwell. Leaving the capital to convalesce over in the palace in Chalcedon, the emperor slowly became worse before dying in May 641. The obvious conclusion to draw was that Martina had poisoned him. A little too obvious, perhaps? Constantine III had not been a healthy young man. Modern scholars guess he may have been suffering from tuberculosis. But whether through natural or unnatural causes, his death was believed by many to have been Martina's doing. The money that Constantine had taken from his mother-in-law had been used to help pay the troops in Anatolia their accessional donative. This was a special bonus paid at the crowning of a new emperor to ensure the loyalty of the troops. Whether he believed he was being poisoned or not, Constantine did fear for his young son, Constance. If he were about to die, his son was in danger. Heraclonus would become emperor, but how would Martina look upon the 11-year-old who could become a rallying point for disaffected members of the imperial court? Soon after the donatives had reached the men of the army, Constantine's retainers did too. They urged what was left of the army of the east and of Armenia to protect the rights of the emperor's son. Back in the capital, once Constantine was cold, Martina banished all of his ministers and made plans for her own administration. But by September, the eastern army had reached the Bosphorus 
and a tense stare-down began. The army demanded the release of young Constance into their care, and Martina and Heraclonus tried to outmaneuver them. The new emperor brought his stepbrother out for the men to see, embraced him, and made it clear he meant him no harm. The exact order of events is murky, but over the next month, Martina and Heraclonus's position began to crumble. Not only were they forced to make a series of concessions to the Armenian general Valentine, who was in charge of the army, but inside the city, an orthodox mob saw the weakening authority of their sovereign and began pressing their own claims. They were deeply unhappy with the new doctrine of monothletism. You know, the Jesus-had-one-will idea, which Sergius and Heraclius had approved before each of them passed away. The mob made threatening moves toward the new patriarch, Pyrrhus, who was forced into exile. Meanwhile, it seems like the senators inside the city began to aid Valentine in his moves against Martina. One suggestion is that the senators moved with greater urgency when the grape-picking season arrived and Valentine's men began gobbling up all the produce from their wealthy estates on the coast of Anatolia. Whatever really happened, Martina's unpopularity proved fatal. Towards the end of the year, Valentine was able to cross the straits and enter the city. Heraclonus was deposed and had his nose slit as a means of preventing him returning to the throne. While for his hated mother, the punishment was to have her tongue cut out. These were considered light punishments by the standards of the time, and Valentine knew he was in no position to execute royalty, so the two of them were exiled to the island of Rhodes, where they remained for the rest of their lives. Young Constance II was now proclaimed emperor, it seems that Valentine attempted to make himself co-Augustus, but the angry reaction of the crowds to that suggestion made him think better of the idea. However, the general was now the leading man in the empire. He arranged a marriage between his daughter Fausta and the pubescent Constance, and then headed back on campaign against the Arabs in eastern Anatolia. By the autumn of 644, though, Valentine was back in the capital, and with armed men by his side, he made his intention to be crowned emperor clear. The new patriarch, Paul, popular with the empowered orthodox crowds, decided to oppose this move. And when Valentine's men made their move toward the bishop, the crowd rushed in and hacked the soldiers to death. With their blood up, Valentine became their next target, and the surprised general was lynched. This all meant that by New Year's Day, 645, four years after the death of Heraclius, the Roman Empire was being ruled by his grandson, Constance II, a 14-year-old boy. Before we get into Constance's reign, though, we need to cover the movements of the ever-advancing Arab armies during this period. Last episode, we left Egypt hanging by a thread as the Arab commander Amir advanced on Alexandria. The city was well fortified and should have been able to withstand a long siege. However, morale was so low and infighting so rife 
that the Roman authorities quickly entered negotiations for surrender. Martina had sent Kiros back to conduct these discussions, and Amir agreed to allow the Byzantines a full year to evacuate the city and take any movable wealth with them. The Muslim commander also made guarantees for the safety of those who stayed behind. And obviously, many Alexandrians had no interest in becoming refugees and were deeply unhappy with the imperial capitulation. But there was no more military support being offered from Constantinople, and so there was little more Kiros could do about the situation. By autumn 642, the soldiers and some of the citizens of Alexandria got onto ships in the harbour and sailed north. Amir rode into the city to accept its submission. By the end of the following year, he had taken control of Cyrenaica, the coastland to the west of Egypt, by this point in history, and still today, known as Libya. Meanwhile, the easy conquest of Roman Mesopotamia left the Arab armies staring up at the mountains of Armenia. You probably remember me describing the location of Dara and Nisbis as being just south of the climb up into these highlands, and I know you're now familiar with that terrain, as it was around the lakes and up and down the great hills and forests that Heraclius trekked during the final war with the Sassanids. The Muslims could therefore hardly stop in the lowlands of Mesopotamia. They would always have been vulnerable to great counterattacks sweeping down from the mountains. They now had a strategic need to march on into Armenia to protect their position. The conqueror of Mesopotamia, Iyad, launched the first raids into Armenia in 640, but the fractured terrain of the highlands meant no easy conquest would follow. By 642, Arab armies returned and were met by Valentine, now emperor in all but name, as he took the eastern armies on the march to try and prevent further losses. He was aided at this time by Theodore Reshtuni. Armenian politics was a constant battle between different houses who each controlled the small pockets of good farming land in between the inhospitable mountains. At this time, Reshtuni had the allegiance of many other families and was recognized by Valentine as the effective ruler of at least the Byzantine portion of the region. The inconclusive campaigns were thoroughly overshadowed in 643 when the Arab armies made their first serious invasion of Anatolia. The new governor of Syria, Muawiyah, organized the raid, which once it crossed the Taurus Mountains, made it all the way to the Byzantine stronghold of Amorian, two-thirds of the way toward Constantinople, before it had to turn back. So this was the situation facing young Constance II when he became sole ruler in 644. The empire was under serious attack, and unlike the situation faced by Heraclius in 610, the Arabs did not seem to have overextended themselves. Constance was born in 630 in Constantinople. In keeping with family tradition, he was named Heraclius at birth, and like his father before him, would be known as Constantine when he became emperor. However, to distinguish him from his father, he was given the diminutive Constance by historians, and the name stuck. I'm sure you remember this sort of issue cropping up all the time in the history of Rome. 
So technically, he should be Constantine the Fourth, but instead we call him Constance the Second. He was born just as Heraclius was being toasted as the savior of Romania, and would have spent his infancy blissfully ignorant of the storm gathering on the horizon. Just as he was learning to read and write, he would have heard the alarming news of the collapse of the East, and as he passed his tenth birthday, constant defeat would have rung in his ears as he watched Heraclius slowly die. Instead of shrinking along with the Empire, though, Constance seems to have absorbed at least some of the courage and intelligence of his grandfather. At 14, he began to exercise his own will over government policy, and though understandably his advisers and generals led him through his first few years, he slowly began to take charge and rule the empire in his own right. I can't imagine how he must have felt at the start, though. I try to think of myself at 14 and imagine how I would have coped with a situation even vaguely similar to this. To try and bring it down to a mundane level so that we can all begin to get our heads around it, how many of you struggle with the geography of the Byzantine Empire? And how many of you struggled with geography class at age 14? Imagine if now not just understanding geography was the question, but commanding armies across that geography. Now, of course, he would have help with military matters and wasn't telling people which valley or river to guard at this stage. But if we think about all that he didn't know and how much he was forced to learn every day, well, it's a scary thought. And from Constance's point of view, it must have seemed like he had no choice. His father was seemingly poisoned and the general who then acted as his guardian was beaten to death in the streets so he must have realized that he either had to take charge quickly or be killed. He didn't have time to be a teenager. He had to act now. And over the next few years, everything the emperor tried failed. He was spitting into the wind at this point, even if his intentions were good. His first project was to retake Egypt. No one can argue with his prioritization here, even though the region's proximity to Arabia made a reconquest seem unlikely. However, the Byzantines still controlled the eastern Mediterranean, and so getting the army back across the sea was no problem. The emperor seems to have favoured Armenians at court, which could be because of his family ancestry, and it was an Armenian general, Manuel, who was chosen to lead the expedition back to Alexandria. The timing of the attack may have had something to do with the death of the Caliph Omar, who was assassinated by a Persian slave in 644. Amir was recalled from Egypt, and with the eyes of the Muslim world turned inward, Manuel made his move. When the fleet arrived in the autumn of 645, the troops made a successful landing and drove the Muslim garrison out of the city. However, despite the success, Manuel wasn't able to make any strategically successful moves afterwards, though whether he understood Egyptian conditions at all is another question. Amir gathered 15,000 men and marched back to Egypt. He and Manuel met in battle, with the Romans once again driven off by the Arabs. Retreating behind the walls of Alexandria, Manuel realised the jig was up, ordered his men back onto their ships, and departed for Constantinople. 
Seeing the potential danger in the walls of Alexandria, Amir and his successors tore them down and established a new capital for the administration of Egypt. This city was established at Fustat, a village at the southern end of the Nile Delta, making it much harder for a Mediterranean fleet to reach. Fustat would eventually grow into the city of Cairo. The expensive failure of this operation left Constance on the defensive for the rest of his teenage years, and the situation on all fronts continued its downward spiral. Both Africa and Italy went into revolt in the next five years. This is where the schisms within the church really reap their bitter harvest. The reason for monothelitism's creation was to try and appease the Monophysites. Almost all of the Monophysites were now living under Muslim rule. However, Constance had far too much on his plate to wade into theological discussions. The people in Italy and Africa were far removed from any Monophysite considerations. And so when news of how monothelitism was further tinkering with the wording of the Council of Chalcedon, they were angry. The exarch of Africa was Gregory, the son of Nicetus, Heraclius's cousin. I'm not sure if he just wanted to rule Africa, or saw himself as a new Heraclius coming to save the empire from its depredations. Either way, he declared himself emperor around 648, and if he thought that he had timed things perfectly for a coup, as his father had, he was very much mistaken. Instead of sailing to Constantinople, Gregory soon got word that the Arab armies in Egypt were marching across Libya toward his province. The few hundred miles it took to get from Libya to Tripolitania was rough going, but it was mostly desert. And who was better equipped to deal with those conditions than the men of Arabia? The raiding force met Gregory's African troops in battle soon afterwards and defeated them. The situation, however, turned out to Constance's advantage. Gregory was killed in the fighting, but the Arabs were not strong enough to attempt conquest. Instead, Gennadius, Gregory's successor, agreed to pay the invaders to leave the province alone. The Arabs were satisfied with this and left Africa for the time being, Gennadius then returned the province to its usual situation vis-à-vis Constantinople by sending tax surpluses on to Constance. Of course, Gennadius wasn't appointed by the emperor, but this show of loyalty was enough to leave him in place for the time being, although Constance really didn't have the resources to remove him, even if he'd wanted to. Meanwhile, the emperor attempted to quieten the religious issue with official neutrality. He announced an edict which forbid further discussion of Christ's wills or energies. However, this was not good enough for Pope Martin in Rome. He condemned both monothelitism and the order not to discuss it. In 650, Constance sent a new exarch, Olympius, to enforce his orders, but once Olympius was in Italy, he sided with the Pope and proclaimed himself emperor. As with Gregory, though, fate was to strike down another usurper without the need for Constance to lift a finger. The key to Italy at this point was Sicily, 
the richest part of the province, and safely out of the reach of the Lombards. However, when Olympias tried to capture the island, he contracted the plague, and his rebellion died with him. By 653, a new loyal exarch took control in Italy, and Pope Martin was brought to Constantinople, put on trial for treason, and found guilty. It was fairly extraordinary for a pontiff to be treated this way, but the stories of his appalling prison conditions sound unlikely to me, and the source for that story is a history of the papacy written much later by Vatican scholars. More importantly than the details of the Western provinces is the fact that they provided little support, only disruption, in this time of great crisis. It's probable that the men in those posts still didn't appreciate how serious a threat the Arabs posed. The emperor, of course, was in no doubt. In Syria, Muawiyah was becoming a nightmare. Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan had been involved in the conquest of Syria and appointed governor by Omar in 639. He took charge of the army there and turned it into an elite force. He chose his sub-commanders based on merit rather than on a tribal basis and took great care over his men's equipment and pay. He was endlessly energetic too and forced his army to campaign every single summer against the Romans to keep up the pressure on the border. Muawiyah also got permission from the new caliph Uthman to begin constructing a fleet. Muawiyah could see that as long as the Byzantines controlled the sea, the coast of Syria, Palestine and Egypt would never truly be safe. So in 648 he began to establish a navy. Of course, many of the Arabs had no experience of the sea at all, and so most of the construction and most of the sailors were to be Christians from former Roman territories. I'm sure there was some coercion involved, but probably many of the men were happy for the paycheck. Monophysites would certainly have been a majority in certain shipyards, and they may have shrugged off the disloyalty because it was aimed at the orthodox imperial government. And of course, as we've talked about before, many of those men would have grown up under Persian occupation and were quite used to serving whoever was in charge at the time. Why argue with the men with swords? By 649, a fleet was ready. It launched an attack on Cyprus, sacking the capital there and ravaging the surrounding countryside. The Arabs didn't attempt to colonise the island, and the Byzantines no longer stationed troops there. However, the Roman fleet did arrive soon after, and the Cypriots were left in the unhappy position of still paying taxes to the emperor, while also sending protection money to the Muslims. Any thought that this new Arab state was going to collapse from internal disorder was becoming less and less likely. If they were so quickly able to organise an effective fleet, then they were clearly far better led than the most optimistic imperial strategists had hoped. In 650, another raiding party burst through the Taurus defences and carried off thousands of prisoners. Constance had recovered enough tax revenue to offer Muawiyah money in exchange for a two-year truce. 
However, this may have backfired, as the Arabs used this time to crush further resistance in western Iran, so that when they returned to the Roman front, they were even more focused. Meanwhile, the pressure was mounting in Armenia. The Muslims now controlled all of formerly Persian Armenia and continued to campaign against Theodore Reshtuni's men. By 653, Theodore accepted that he couldn't keep the Arab armies out any longer, and so he agreed to become a subject of the Caliphate. This was a significant moment because Armenia had not been conquered, and nor were the Arabs going to march in and occupy the area. Instead, Theodore was switching sides. He was agreeing to now take his orders, as such, from Moawiyah. Not that he'd been taking orders from Constance, really. He'd just been defending his turf. Now he was agreeing to fight the Romans if they attempted to regain control of the area. You might think, well, good riddance. If the Armenians don't want to stay part of the empire, then let them go. However, that would be to miss the significance of Armenia. I haven't talked a huge amount about Armenian history during the podcast. I know it comes up regularly as a point of geography, and of course was the buffer zone between Rome and Persia for centuries. But you may have noticed that more Roman generals than you might expect come from Armenia. And this is not a recent development. The fact is that in the ancient world, the best soldiers almost always come from mountainous or desert regions. Why? Because these men had grown up tough. If you live in the mountains, then just gathering food and water requires physical fitness. There's a good chance you will have learnt to hunt for food and will understand weather and travel conditions better than a city dweller. Essentially, you've already completed some of the basic training of military life. The same goes for the men of the desert, which should help to begin answering the question of how the Arabs were able to conquer the known world so quickly. During the history of Rome, you saw how men from the Illyrian mountains were able to lead the tough central army through the crisis of the 3rd century. And on our own podcast, you saw the Emperor Leo turn to Zeno the Isaurian, the man from the mountains himself, to help push the Goths out of the Balkans. Armenia was an entirely mountainous country, and as I mentioned earlier, its history was filled with internal conflict as different houses battled over the country's limited resources. This meant that Armenian soldiers were ideal recruits, and many had already experienced positions of leadership. With the Balkans now out of imperial control, and so much of the East gone, the Romans desperately needed Armenia as a recruiting ground for the army, and as their front line with the Muslims. If the mountains were lost, then the plateau of Anatolia would be exposed, and beyond it lay the only wealthy communities that were still under direct control from Constantinople. Constance II was acutely aware of the importance of Armenia, and in 652, at the age of 21, the emperor led the eastern armies personally into Armenia, just as his grandfather had done. Again, I'm struck by the bravery of that decision. There was a very good chance that any sortie against the Arabs would end in defeat, and the possibility of the emperor's death. But presumably realising that, like his grandfather, if he was going to inspire a back-to-the-walls defence, he needed to be there personally, 
the emperor went. In the end, though, he didn't have to fight any Arab forces while on campaign. Instead, he unseated Theodore Reshtuni, who fled to Syria, and re-established Roman control over the forces in Armenia. He even took time to march north toward Iberia and receive the submission of some princes there. However, the struggle over this region was set to continue for some time. The following year, Muawiyah restored Theodore Reshtuni, and soon after that, Constance sent another force in to secure at least the western portions of the country. By 654, Muawiyah personally led a devastating assault on the empire, using both his land and sea forces. On land, his army drove the Roman troops from Armenia and plundered Ancyra, Trebizond, and Theodosiopolis during that summer. Meanwhile, he sent detachments of his fleet to attack Cyprus and Crete, while he himself led the largest part of the navy to the island of Rhodes. In addition to attacking the cities and the countryside, Muawiyah is said to have carried off the remains of the Colossus of Rhodes. The giant statue had fallen some 800 years earlier, but much of the scrap metal was apparently left on the shore, and was now carried off and sold. But when you throw in the detail that a Jewish merchant then bought the metal, it sounds a lot like Christian propaganda. Either way, the important news was that the energetic and ruthless Muawiyah had just attacked the three largest islands in the eastern Mediterranean, while simultaneously launching an army across Anatolia. The rumour on both sides was that the governor had his sights fixed on Constantinople. In 655, Moawiyah confirmed those suspicions when he launched another dual assault. His army marched through Cappadocia as his fleet advanced along the southern coast. Constance understood the threat and also knew that it was the naval supremacy which would keep his capital safe. Again stepping forward personally, the now 25-year-old led the imperial fleet into battle. The two sides met in the waters near the town of Phoenix, not that far from Rhodes, on the Anatolian coast. This was a large battle with both sides suffering heavy casualties and many lost ships. The Muslims were victorious, though, in what would become known as the Battle of the Masts. This was because apparently one side fixed the cross and the other the crescent to their masts, but considering the majority of the Muslim fleet were Christians, it seems like a later invention. Constance himself was involved in heavy fighting, and at some point realised that he was going to be captured or killed. So according to legend, he switched clothes with a willing officer and fled the scene. The emperor made it safely back to Constantinople, while his counterpart drew Arab attention and was killed wearing the imperial regalia. Although this was yet another disaster for the Roman military, the Arabs suffered badly enough that they were forced to retreat to their ports. Meanwhile, on land, Moawiyah's forces failed in an attempt to capture Caesarea and withdrew. Two tactical draws did not change the overall situation, though. The Arabs were dominant, and an attack on the imperial capital still seemed imminent. However, at this point, fate intervened to give Constance the breathing room he desperately needed. As I mentioned earlier, the Arabs did not suffer from the same constraints the Sassanids did when they occupied the Roman East. 
The Persians had only a limited number of men in their professional army and so were unable to increase its size when they needed to. Whereas Arab tribes from across the deserts of the Near East were now moving into new areas to take up the governance of the conquered provinces. However, this caused tensions between the new settlers and those who'd arrived first, along with tension between those in power in the province and the caliph back in Medina. Discontent with Uthman's rule had been building for some time, when in the summer of 656, his house was surrounded and he was beaten to death by an angry crowd. Muawiyah was forced to call off his campaigns and head south to help settle matters. The resulting civil war would last six years and leave Constance time to consider how best Byzantium could defend itself when the Arabs returned. Thank you so much for listening, and for your questions for the end of the century. Keep them coming. I'd like to say a big thank you to musicalley.com for the music which plays us in and out. This piece is by Rob Vandenberg. And just a reminder that if you live in the US or Canada, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to get a free audiobook that comes with a one month trial of Audible service. The Audible app now works on every smartphone, Kindle, and other device you can think of, and you can cancel your trial anytime you like. And something I discovered recently, if you become an Audible member and don't like the book you're listening to, then you can swap it for another free of charge. Anyway, check out Audible's service at audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.